welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 12th of April 2021 and this is episode 203. On today's Dispatches podcast, I speak to Roger Rees, Professor of History at Texas A&M University in the USA, about his research into the Russian army before and during the Great War. Roger spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Texas. Roger, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, Well, I'm Roger Rees. I'm a professor of history at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. Um, I've kind of been a lifelong history buff, obviously, and and the military in particular. I served uh, for three years on active duty in the United States Army as an infantry officer uh, before uh, starting graduate studies. Uh, So I started in Soviet history, uh, studying the Soviet military. I've been doing that for long enough. I decided to broaden my horizons and start looking backwards uh, into the Imperial Russian Army, uh, something I wish I had done much earlier. Now, I would think I would have understood my Soviet military better if I looked at the uh, Imperial Russian Army sooner. So, But obviously, studying the Imperial Russian Army, it leads you to World War I. Um, that is the, the culminating event of its existence. So, so c- could you start by telling us about this, the nature, size, and ethnic composition of the Russian Imperial Army in the, in the number of years before the outbreak of the Great War? Uh, it was uh, predominantly Russian, uh, but still a huge number of Ukrainians, Belarusians, a smaller number of Poles who they distrusted immensely, uh, had Cossacks, of course, who were kind of an adjunct to the military in a lot of ways during peacetime. The Cossacks were more more used as a uh, a um, gendarmerie to quell unrest and as to augment the police. But in wartime, then they would uh, you know, form regular divisions and go to the front. And uh, of course, there's a huge population of Central Asians, but they were not incorporated into the army. They were not drafted. Uh, the Russians just had a tremendous um, unease with them being uh, not white, <laughs> not orthodox. Uh, and probably not very patriotic as, as they, they were right actually on that one. So, um, but that, so that the composition was fairly, oh, and of course, Baltics um, states, uh, the Estonians, Latvians, uh, Lithuanians, uh, smattering of Finns. Finns were, weren't even drafted into the army until after the turn of the century. Uh, so they were a pretty small minority, but they had uh, secret memos going around the Russian army about um, not concentrating non-Russians, you know, keeping them spread out throughout the army rather than large numbers uh, together, just because they the Russians were distrustful of them. Except Ukrainians, they, Ukrainians and Belarusians, they, they, the Slavs, they were pretty comfortable with, but everybody else, they, they didn't want to have clumps of them where they might uh, cause trouble. And did they recruit disproportionately from, say, the European and, and Ukrainian uh, communities within the Russian Empire? Yeah, it seems they did, but that was, I think it was more of a natural tendency because they were the largest populations. So um, they were going to deliver up more people. But on a percentage um, per population, I think it was actually fairly uniform. Uh, but the, the Baltic states, Polish populations were in the empire were much smaller, so they were going to deliver up uh, 
a smaller number of troops. I don't think they targeted non-Russians left. Uh, and who provided the officer corps in the sort of pre-war army? Uh, the officer corps was also actually um, pretty uh, heterogeneous. Uh, it was mostly Russians and Slavs, but uh, it was always open to uh, non-Russian, uh, even Poles, although they, they were actually discouraged from <laughs> becoming officers. There were obstacles put in their way. Poles could not go to the military academy, the cadet course, um, and they were not allowed to go to the general staff academy, which would definitely limit their rise in promotion. Um, socially, uh, you know, obviously before the emancipation, it was <clears throat> overwhelmingly nobles. Uh, man the officer corps. Uh, but even non-nobles could become officers uh, by volunteering through the ranks and rising up or being drafted. Even peasants could rise up through the ranks, but that was, um, I wouldn't say rare, but not to be expected that they would make it that high if they wanted. But um, in the immediate years before the war, <coughs> the officer corps had become mostly non-noble. After the great reforms and the establishment of what they called Junker schools, uh, which were open to all classes, uh, that uh, there was a a very steady rise in social mobility from the peasantry, the middle class, working class, into the army, through the officer corps, through those schools. So I think at the start of the war, officer corps was 53% non-noble. Whereas before the war, it was in the, the nobility was 90 more than 90% nobility. And what's the army raised on a basis of conscription um, before the war? Yes, the Russian army has always been based on conscription. Uh, so so let's, let's talk about the army and its sort of um, life as a military force before the outbreak of the First World War. Have it seen any combat action in the late Victorian period in the early, or what we call the early Edwardian period, from 1900 to about 1910? Well, yes, the, they had a major war with Japan in Manchuria. So the Russo-Japanese War, 1904 and 1905, uh, so February 04 till uh, September of 05 uh, involved they had over 900,000 men in, in combat in that war uh, that had to transfer mostly from European Russia to fight the Japanese, uh, a war that they did not perform very well in. And they said they weren't actually defeated, I wouldn't say that, but they, uh, they definitely didn't win. And the peace uh, treaty ended up vastly in favor of the Japanese. So the Russians felt they should have won. Uh, they didn't. They lost their position, the majority position in Manchuria. Uh, and they learned a lot from it, uh, which they started to use to prepare for World War One. But uh, those lessons were incompletely absorbed through their training and doctrine. And then we come to the outbreak of, of the First World War. What sort of actions was the Russian army involved in in the first few years? Well, in a sense, they were fighting two wars at the same time, even three on the, the Turkish front. Um, they had you know, a group of armies fighting the Germans and they had their objectives and their intent and a group of armies fighting the Pol against the Austro-Hungarian army and then you had the army fighting the Turks when Turk came in, Turkey came into the war in uh, November of 1914. So it wasn't very well coordinated uh, to be sure. Uh, they had competing claims for materials on the three different fronts and different levels of success. So in uh, August 1914, uh, they attacked on both the Austrian front and the German front, did disastrously against the Germans that uh, the battles of uh, Tannenberg and Masurian Lakes were huge defeats by a vastly outnumbered German army routed uh, and destroyed two Russian armies uh, and pushed them back. They, the wars, that Those battles were actually fought in East Prussia uh, and the Germans successfully pushed them out of East Prussia uh, on that one. But at the, at the same time, as they were losing disastrously to the Germans, they were scoring quite uh, notable successes against the Austrians, uh, pushing them uh, out of, or actually 
capturing Galicia, uh, Warsaw, pushing all the way down to the Carpathians, uh, taking large numbers of prisoners, inflicting numbers of casualties. So it's you know, very hard to judge the efficiency of the Russian army, where it was losing disastrously on one front and advancing spectacularly on the other front. But uh, eventually they, they would, uh, in 1915, get pushed out of their gains that they had taken in um, against Austria by a massive joint German-Austrian offense, um, the um, tarno um, Gorlis offense in uh, July, August, September 1915. Completely routed, crushed the Russian army. I think the Russians like two, lost about two million men as the Austrians with the Germans pushed them back all the way in, back in, in, into Ukraine. Uh, and at that point, the war becomes a little bit more static. Um, the Russians would have a very successful offensive, again, against the Austrians in summer of 1916, um, pushing them back uh, well over 100 miles. But not decisive in the course of the war, um, so uh, but show that they they could mount a very successful offensive. They, they had tried a, an offensive against the Germans that same early that spring, and it had failed disastrously again. So they were consistently failed against the Germans, but uh, uneven against the Austrians. Win some, lose some, kind of on that on that front. So on the Turkish front, they kind of by, by mutual agreement, um, they uh, engaged in stalemate. Once the, the Russians had made a, a fairly decent advance in late 1915, captured uh, Kars and Izerum, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and then they just stopped. So, okay, then we've had enough of this. We the the main effort is going to be on the Western, for the Russians' Western Front, which was Austria and Germany. And the Turks really weren't interested in fighting there in the Caucasus either. They, their efforts were against the British and French at Gallipoli, Mesopotamia holding on to those games. So that was uh, a, a very mutually satisfactory situation. We'll, we'll sit here and look, look at each other in the Caucasus and put our resources elsewhere. And so what would you rate as the strengths and weaknesses of the Russian army during the, the, the initial period of the First World War? Well, this will come as no surprise to anybody. Their strength was in numbers. Uh, they had huge numbers of manpower uh, to, to push against everywhere they wanted to push. Uh, the weakness was their ability to use that manpower effectively. Uh, the training wasn't very thorough, um, top to bottom. Their officer corps was uh, took massive casualties in 1915 and well, 1914 and 1915, and replacing them proved very very difficult. Um, they set up uh, short uh, wartime courses to produce officers, which actually was kind of common across the armies in the war. They needed to replace leadership. Uh, but these courses lasted uh, about three months. Uh, you know, like like in the World War II, we talked about the 90-day wonder. Uh, United States Army. Same same thing with the Russians. Uh, and there, the training again was uh, perfunctory. It seems not very thorough. Uh, but the bigger problem was the material upon which they drew to. Uh, replace their officer corps. Uh, one only needed an elementary school education to qualify to go to officer training, which was even then not uh, all that common. Uh, the Russian population was uh, very, very undereducated. So they dealt mostly with uh, unsophisticated, undereducated uh, men uh, to, to produce their new officer corps. There, there were plenty of actually college and high school educated Russians, but the majority of them uh, eschewed serving uh, out of really political motivations that they just could not see themselves serving the czar. They're uh, liberal in motivation. Um, on one hand, they're very patriotic. They, they love their country and they wanted the best fort, but they thought the best fort might actually be defeat if that would bring about the final end of the monarchy. So they were very conflicted about that. And, and these men, rather than joining the, but some did, there definitely were middle class and educated nobles who did uh, become officers, but not in the numbers that they needed. Instead, the, the more liberal political 
political types uh, found ways of serving the country uh, as non-combatant, uh, helping with war industries, uh, the Red Cross, things like that. So very much different from the armies uh, in the West, where really from top to bottom, you have public support, very strong support from the middle classes. Russia, the, the middle class was uh, was not uh, very supportive of the war because to them, it, it seemed like supporting autonomy. It, they didn't want the Tsar to succeed at this. They withheld support that way. So they were, what motivated the industrial uh, working classes and rural peasantry um, to fight for the Tsar? Okay, uh, that's a fairly short answer. They Across the board, they were very... Uh, reluctant to fight. Uh, they were not motivated. Uh, uh, fairly high rates of desertion and uh, draft avoidance. And did the Tsar, um, I'm just thinking about the parallel in the Second World War, when you have the, the Soviet army using a lot of very, very strong armed tactics to get soldiers to fight. Did the Tsar use similar tactics? Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, you know, sort of penal units or, you know, lining machine guns up behind uh, offensives. And did they use the same level of coercion that certainly Stalin um, did at bits, a bit, during bits of the Second World War? Uh, as far as coercion goes, uh, no. Not not at first. That is, for the first uh, two years, uh, they, they actually had on the books very stringent uh, consequences for desertion and draft avoidance, including death, could be shot uh, for that. And they were very, very reluctant to do that. Um, I say, I don't know that they ever did execute anybody for desertion or draft evasion. Uh, they argued, the general's staff argued about it, um, but they always came down on the side of lenience. Where they did um, become fairly Stalinist, let's say, or pre-Stalinist in their behaviors, was uh, towards the second half of 1916, when soldiers began to resist orders. And I, I use the term resist because uh, uh, you don't want to say outright mutiny, although that began to be seen, to, to men began to refuse orders to attack in the late 1916. Um, so those were outright mutinies, but they were very, uh, dragging your feet, protesting the conditions of the food, uh, protesting the war in some aspects. It vocally started in 1916. But once they started to mutiny and men re- refused to attack, and or refused to move from the rear to the front to take their turn, then they became extremely draconian. Uh, they would, the officers would find the, the ringleaders and ex- execute them in front of the, the rest of the men. So those executions uh, began in, in uh, uh, let's say, November, December 1916 and, and escalated into 1970. That was not actually from the Tsar and the general staff or, or, the, or the Stavka, the head of the army. This was the, the uh, division and corps commanders kind of took the initiative on that. And after the first major incident, uh, and this was brought to Nicholas II, his attention, he endorsed it wholeheartedly. That's how you handle that. And so at that, uh, division commanders really were kind of given carte blanche uh, outside the judicial system to go ahead and execute people and do the paperwork afterward, uh, not going through tribunals uh, and, and the regular military justice if, if they didn't want to. And you've mentioned Tsar Nicholas. What was his role in the uh, direction of the army during the war? Well, initially, um, well, it's an under the autocratic system, the Tsars always had the right and sort of there was an expe- expectation that they would lead the army in time of war. You actually had Alexander I back in the Napoleonic Wars, you know, moved his headquarters to the front and took an active part. Uh, but uh, Nicholas didn't, not in the Russo-Japanese War or in this war. He appointed his uh, second cousin, uh, Nicholas, also Nicholas, uh, to command the army. Uh, Grand Duke uh, Nicholas Nik- Nikolaevich. You know, uh, so the Tsar so just kind of stood back and, and let his uh, cousin do that. And of course, that didn't work all that well. Um, I, I mentioned the, the Gorlice Tarnow offensive, where the Russians were pushed out of Poland and lost those huge numbers of casualties uh, in summer of 1915. So at that point, 
um, Nicholas did. He fired his brother, his, I mean, sorry, his cousin, sent him to the Turkish front where nothing was going to happen. And Nicholas went to the front with the high command to supposedly direct the war. Um, but uh, to his credit, Nicholas recognized he had no idea how to run a huge army at war. So he, he presented himself as, as the, uh, the figurehead and let his chief of staff, General uh, Mikhail Alexiev, actually run the war. So he didn't actually provide any strategic guidance. Uh, as a matter of fact, as far as I can tell, there was no strategy to win the war. They never sat down and says, here's, here's step one, two, three, and four that's going to lead us to victory. They, they just never did that. So if they were looking for Nicholas to do that, well, he failed. But even before that, um, their initial plans back in 1914, uh, when that didn't work, they never came up with plan B. So uh, there was no strategic guidance ever really during the war after, let's say, October 1914. Which is which is really interesting because it, I, I was wondering why the Germans succeeded in the First World War in defeating Russia, but obviously failed in the Second World War. And it, it's, a, it's a victory that nobody really talks about. We always talk about don't invade Russia because you'll be stuck there in the winter. But the Germans actually worked pretty effectively in defeating the Russian army. Why were they able to defeat the Russian army um, in in 1917, 1918, and ultimately conclude the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk? That's a, a really interesting question. And I'm glad you recognize that the Germans won the war. <laughs> they won the war on the Eastern Front. Uh, they only lost those gains at the, the at actually, uh, I just learned this a few months ago, at the, um, the, uh, Compiègne, at, at the actual um, armistice signing, they, the Germans said, okay, but we get to keep the East, right? Because we, we won there. And the French said, no, <laughs> we can't keep the East. Part of the armistice terms. Um, so, <clears throat> um, but they were, they were successful in, on the Eastern, their Eastern front. Um, I think mostly because of the, the Russians' internal problem, the, the Russians' inability to uh, maintain the war and keep morale and discipline up on the home front. Because uh, you need to keep in mind that even after the Tsar abdicates in, Feb in March 1917, the war was still on. Uh, the provisional government kept the war up and, and the Germans couldn't just leave, claim victory. Um, and at the, the October Revolution, the provisional government was kicked out, the Bolsheviks take over. The war was still on and the Germans were feeling you know, pretty good that they, they could um, end the war. Uh, and it was turned out to be just in the interest of the Bolsheviks to, to end the war. They couldn't consolidate power against their internal enemies and fight World War I at the same time. So um, rather than the Germans forcing victory, the Germans put the Bolsheviks in position to finally get the peace, blame the war on the Tsar, called a bourgeois imperialist war, and they could have peace with sort of honor on that sense. So I guess the key to German's victory was outlasting the Russians, letting the, the Russians kind of feed on themselves. And it was the Bolsheviks who lost the war. They chose to quit on vastly unfavorable terms. Uh, it was not actually a surrender. It was just, you know, a, kind of a typical European negotiated peace to an end of a war, uh, you know, 19th you know, century, 18th century type term um, that obviously were humiliating for the Russians and very beneficial for the Germans. But you know, the Germans uh, and the Austrians together never really prioritized the war against Russia. For the Germans, it was always victory in the West was, was how it was going to end, was what was going to end the war. So uh, there was a big, there was a contest within the German high command, the Easterners versus the Westerners. Uh, and the, the Easterners got their way in 1915, got resources. But other than that, um, troops were sent from the Western Front to rest on the Eastern Front, German troops, uh, because they, they were like, well, that, we're not going to put our eggs in that basket. They're going to go against France and Britain. So, so actually, the Germans actually managed to force the Russians out of the war with, you know, a, the minimum of effort <laughs> that they chose to put into it. And so did the army have a decisive role in the actual revolutions that took place in 1917 and 1918? Uh, yes, um, it was the, the, 
the high command at the front that was instrumental in forcing the abdication of Nicholas II. You had the, the, the riots, uh, well, the revolution in Petersburg, uh, and the provisional government took over with, with the intent of actually keeping Nicholas on the throne if he would agree to their demand. Uh, the army stepped into that and decided that they really wanted to get rid of him. They didn't really want to end autocracy, which is what the provisional government did. The provisional government wanted to end autocracy and turn it into more of a, a constitutional monarchy, a true constitutional monarchy, very much on the British pattern. Uh, they they like that model. So that, that's what they were pushing for in March of 1917. They sent the telegrams and a delegation to the, the front, the high command, but the army decided, no, they wanted to keep autocracy, but not Nicholas. So they engineered his uh, abdication and they were hoping he would create a, what well, the, the plan was, and this was a very hastily hatched plan, to uh, create a regency with uh, the Tsarevich Alexei, which the army would then, you know, supervise and win the war. They, they blame the loss of their, they're not winning, let's say, on Nicholas, which is completely misplaced, uh, but convenient. Um, but that did, obviously that didn't work out. Uh, Nicholas abdicated to his brother, Michael, rather than to his son. Uh, but the mobs in Petersburg refused to acknowledge that. And Michael decided he didn't really want to be czar that bad. So they, uh, you know, this happened in just a matter of days that Russia went from autocracy to uh, a republic, which was not what either the provisional government or the army wanted, but it is what the people of Russia wanted. In 1917, the army had no role in that at all. Uh, by that time, there had been a, a, a purge of the of the conservatives, uh, the generals, um, and they had had the Kornilov revolt, which completely discredited the military, and the soldiers had formed their committees, um, very much like the workers had formed committees, uh, in order to vet orders from the high command or from their office. They, they, they voted on whether to obey or not. And so on those conditions, really the army was not, the high command was unable to use the army to do anything except hold the front. And finally, Roger, where can people learn more about your research? Well, I guess they'd have to <coughs> read my book and Google me and find out what's out there. Uh, I'm still working on, I'm working on another, two, two more books right now. Uh, one is going to, uh, it's due to the publisher in just a few months. Uh, it's called Russia's Way of War. That's our working title. Uh, goes back from Alexander the first to through World War II. Um, and then this is more of a strategy, doctrine, tactics type of a book. How they thought about war and prepared to, to fight it uh, and fight it. Um, so that's, that'll be the University of Oklahoma Press. And I'm working on another one with a Bloomsbury Academic. Uh, working title is called The Russians and Their Army, which is really uh, a social history from Peter the First to through Putin about how the Russian people, and I really do mean the, the Russian people, uh, related to their army, how the state related to the army, and the army relates to the state and, and the people, and from conscription and peasant reaction to workers and all the social constructs on that. And that, that's probably five years out on that. Right. Roger, thank you very much for your time. Hope, hope this was useful. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.